As it's noted in your bulletin, we're turning in God's Word now to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. As I was thinking about our worship service this morning and I was planning the different parts of it, of course I was picking out the various hymns and songs that we'd sing in the course of the service, there was one song that occurred to me we might sing, and then I thought, no, let's not. But on one level, it would be fitting. It's not in the hymnal. It's a song that goes like this. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Presbyterian Church in America. Happy birthday to us. It's not today, but December 4th, which is right around the corner. December 4th is going to be the 50th birthday of our denomination. It was on December the 4th, 1973, when the very first General Assembly of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, was convened in Birmingham, Alabama. December the 4th, 1973. So, brothers and sisters, we're coming up on a birthday. You might remember when we had our annual General Assembly just this past summer in Memphis, there were all sorts of commemorations that week of our 50th anniversary as a church. But December 4th is the actual birthday, and we're going to mark it. We're going to celebrate it here at New Hope, and we're going to take a few Sundays to do it. This is an opportunity for us over these weeks to think again and to rejoice again in what the Word of God teaches us about why His church is a really big deal, about why the church is a very good gift of God. This is an opportunity for us as a congregation to be refreshed like that, and we're going to seize it. We're going to seize that happy opportunity. And this morning, we're going to get things going. We're going to get the birthday celebrations underway by turning to 1 Timothy 3. Short passage. In fact, it's printed right there in your bulletin if you simply want to glance there. At this point in the letter, Paul's been giving Timothy various instructions about what the life of the church ought to be like. He talks about the prayers of the church He has some things to say about the officers of the church. And then he says this, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Listen to it again. Short passage. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is God's word. Let's pray together now. Father, we are grateful for your word, and grateful indeed for the church that we can gather as we do this morning, 
to hear your word and to worship you as we do now. We pray that you would bless us, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders that you have for us here. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's two letters to Timothy and then his one letter to Titus, which comes right after them. Those three books are often referred to as the New Testament's pastoral epistles, Paul's pastoral letters. And they're called that because in them he's writing to two men who were themselves pastors in the church, both Timothy and Titus. That was their calling. These letters are also pastoral in the sense that Paul is pastoring them. He's shepherding and guiding them as he's writing to them. Guiding them, instructing them, encouraging them for their callings. Here is Paul pastoring the pastor who is young Timothy, who's in Ephesus at the time when this letter is written. Over the course of his ministry, Timothy had become one of Paul's close fellow workers. Timothy had traveled with him. He had ministered with him. He had learned from Paul. This was a kind of mentor-protege relationship between the two. Paul had become Timothy's father in the things of ministry, and he trained him just as a father would train his son. And that's what he's doing in the very writing of these letters. At the time when this letter is written, it's likely late in Paul's life. Paul is persevering in his apostolic ministry. And he's left young Timothy in Ephesus for the purpose of pastoring the church there. For the purpose of standing for the truth in that place in the face of threats that had arisen there against the gospel. In the first two and a half chapters or so, Paul has covered a number of different issues in the interest of guiding Timothy for his work. In chapter 2 especially, and then on in chapter 3, Paul's covered the life of the church, the kinds of things that are supposed to go on, for example, when the church meets, the kinds of men who ought to be officers in the church. Paul's gone over all of this for Timothy's benefit, and then that brings us to verses 14 and 15, which I just read for us a minute ago. After all of these things that Paul has had to say about the life of the church, take a look again at verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing to you. This is one of these verses in a New Testament letter that reminds you that These really were letters exchanged between actual people rooted in down-to-earth circumstances and relationships. Timothy, I'm hoping to see you in person before too long. Same kind of thing that you might say to somebody you're writing to today. So he says, I'm writing these things to you. And then he says, so that if I delay, it's an interesting little acknowledgement on Paul's part. I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing to you so that if I delay, the Apostle Paul, ever the realist, 
realizes full well that things might not work out in quite the way that he hopes. I'm writing to you so that if I delay, and then he goes on, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress the truth. Paul wants Timothy to know how a church is supposed to work, what the life of the church ought to be like, and Paul wants Timothy to know that now. These are things that can't wait for Timothy to hear from Paul when he's finally able to get there and talk to him face to face. He wants them to know these things now. How the whole of a church is supposed to work as one body. And to give him a sense of why that matters so much. Notice what he says about the church, the body that it is. He says it's nothing less than the household of God. The church is God's family. He also says that it's the church of the living God. Even that phrase invests this with a sense of of meaning and drama. The church of the living God. This is not the temple of some dead idol. And then he says, and this is where we're training our attention this morning. He says it is the pillar and buttress the truth. All these things that the church is, it's that too. It's the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now the second of those two words, it's a bit tricky to translate And so different English translations have picked a variety of different words for it. Some translations have buttress. Some have ground, the pillar and ground of the truth. Some have the word foundation, pillar and foundation. Some have the word bulwark, pillar and bulwark of the truth. Some translations simply use the word support. The pillar and support of the truth. And that's a good choice. Whenever a word has a a wide range of meanings like this one, it's usually a good idea to go with a translation that doesn't overcommit you to too much much imagery. The pillar and support of the truth is a very good way of putting it. And that's what Paul is saying about the church in the world. Of all of these glorious things that the church is, This is one of them. It's the pillar and support of the truth in the world. The idea being that the church holds up and holds forth the truth of the gospel in the world for all who would see that gospel and believe it. That, Paul says, is the glorious purpose of the church. By God's design, it holds up and it holds forth the truth of the gospel for the world to see. Because that truth is not our private possession as the church. It's been entrusted to us, but not to be hidden away, but to be held up and to to be held forth for the world to see. The church is the pillar and support of the gospel. So it's that truth especially that I want us to to latch on to today and to reflect upon now. And and we'll do so in these two ways in particular. To say that the church is the pillar and support of the gospel. First of all, let's think about what, what that looks like, what that involves positively, that the church is that. And then second of all, 
we'll need to do a little bit of clarifying work. We'll think together about what it does not mean that the church is the pillar and support of the gospel in the world because it is easy to go wrong here, so we want to be clear. So first of all then, what does it actually look like? What does it involve for the church to serve as the pillar and support of the truth in the world? Well, for starters, what is that truth? And the answer is, it's the whole counsel of God. That's what's been entrusted to us in the writings, in the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has revealed in his word for the faith and life of his redeemed people. In other words, it's truth that runs the gamut. Everything from who God is, to what God has done for us in Christ, to what God requires us to do and to be in Christ. It's truth that runs the gamut. And by the way, you don't have to look far to see that because you see it played out in this very letter, in the letter that is 1 Timothy. What is the truth as you read through these chapters in 1 Timothy? What's the truth in which Paul is training young Pastor Timothy in this letter? Well, this is a letter that runs the gamut. Everything from the glory of Christ as our all-sufficient Redeemer to the sorts of rules that are supposed to be in place in the church for the care of widows. Everything from the brilliant glory of our immortal God to the way that wealthy Christians are supposed to handle their wealth. It's all in here in this one letter. God, Christ, church life, Christian calling, practical Christian obedience. That's how comprehensive is the church or the truth for which the church stands strong in the world for all to see. The person and work of Christ are at the center of it. The good news of salvation in Jesus. But that's not the whole of it. The truth of the gospel is the whole counsel of God. Now, how is it then that we, who are the church, serve as the pillar and support of that truth in the world? How do we do that? How is it that we are that in the world? Well, principally by means of the church's ministry of word and sacrament. We can start there. A ministry that Christ himself has entrusted to the church in the world. A ministry of word and sacrament. The preaching of the gospel. As well as the visible display of that gospel in baptism and the Lord's Supper. By means of those things, the church holds forth the whole counsel of God. And the church holds that truth forth, not only by positively proclaiming it, but also by defending it against its opponents. The church is pillar, both as proclaimer, yes, but also as defender. That's why in the third of the three pastoral epistles, when when Paul writes to Titus, Paul says to Titus in that letter that elders have got to be men who are able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, the church stands for the truth both offensively and defensively. And it does so, as I've said, by its ministry of word and sacrament. But as I said, we can start there, but we certainly cannot stop there. 
We can start with the church's ministry of word and sacrament, but that doesn't exhaust all of the ways in which we serve this role in the world. There's more to the church's pillar work than word and sacrament. For example, the songs that we sing are part of it as well. Our hymns and songs are meant to be our corporate expression of the truth set to music. So that's part of it too. So too our prayers as a people. Whenever we join together in prayer, we are in a way confessing the truth of God as we go because His truth, the whole counsel of God, is woven through the prayers that we pray as a church. So preaching, sacrament, song, prayer, in a sense, everything that we do when we meet as a body for worship on the Lord's Day, it's part of what it means for the church to be God's stronghold for the truth. And we can't even stop there. It's not just the things we do when we meet for worship. Really, it's our whole life as a body. Public worship is at the center of that life, but it's not the whole of it. Our gatherings for prayer later on in the Lord's Day. Our breakfasts, our Bible studies, our session and diaconate meetings. All of those things in their own way are part of our corporate stand for the truth. Even the accountability that we exercise as a body, helping one another, sometimes correcting one another, seeking to make sure that each of us is holding fast. Because it's not just the things we do as a body that make us the pillar of the truth. It's also the kind of people that we're meant to be. A people who not only hear the truth, but then who also believe it and who embrace it. And who live it out. That's got to be part of our pillar identity. That we are that kind of people who are shaped by the truth. That's got to be. Just imagine the alternative. The preacher stands up on Sunday and preaches the word of God. But then none of of us actually hears it or, or cares or does anything about it. What kind of pillar in the community would that be? What kind of beacon For the truth in the world. If anything, a community like that would bring the word into disrepute. Especially in light of the fact that this is a truth that's supposed to change lives. That's part of the truth that's being proclaimed. It's got to be that the hearts and ways of the members of the body matter when it comes to the church's pillar and support role. The church is not in the business of standing for the truth merely for the sake of ideas that satisfy the mind. And that, too, comes through in 1 Timothy. That's one of the very first things that Paul reminds Timothy of in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And a sincere faith. That is the beautiful, powerful character of the church holding forth the gospel in the world. Not only the proclamation and defense of that gospel, but the life of a people who love that gospel and who have been so evidently shaped by it so that it shows in the way they live. Principally a people who love one another within the body as brothers and sisters, but also a people who then go out into the world loving their neighbors in obedience to that truth. 
Even when we're separated from one another during a good bit of the week. Even then. In those moments when, when we can feel like we, we're, we're not the church then because we're scattered. No, even then we still belong to one another. We still belong to the church, which is the church of the living God. Even when we scatter from this assembly and go out into the world, we go out into the world as members of the church, as representatives of her. Our witness in the world, in word and deed, it is the real life, flesh and blood embodiment of the church's ministry, standing for the truth. That's the kind of family we are. It's a similar principle, by way of analogy, that's true of natural family. So if Christy and I leave the house in the morning, go our separate ways, and Charlotte heads off to school, and Henry and Philip are down in Charlottesville, still we go out into the world as members of the Wolf family. We may be apart, we may be scattered, even by several hours, but we're still a family. And during the day, those around us see the wolf family represented in each of us on our own. So it is with the church. The Christian, out in the world, or in the home, or on the road, or wherever, his obedience to the truth, even when he's entirely on his own, is part of the church's witness. Because wherever he goes, and whatever he's up to, Whatever calling it is that he's fulfilling in the world, he goes out into the world as a card-carrying member of the Church of Christ. He is himself one of the living stones, one of the living bricks that make up that pillar that God has erected. So, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning on this first point. I want to challenge you this morning. Our congregation exists here in Fairfax to be this, to be a pillar, a support, a post, a signpost where the gospel is held up and held forth. And brothers and sisters, you are a part of that. It's not just what I do up here on Sunday. For that matter, it's not just what we do together on Sundays. It's the whole of our life together. And it's all of the ways that we live it out, Monday through Saturday as well. You students in your schooling, parents in your parenting, on the job, in the neighborhood, on the sidelines, in the grocery stores, brothers and sisters of New Hope Presbyterian Church, this is what we are together. And Fairfax needs us. By that I mean the world needs the church. The world needs a pillar where the gospel is posted. The only word that can save where the gospel is posted in word and deed, in faith and life. That's what we are. And I want to challenge you this morning to have a a proper sense of that about about us together as a congregation and about your part in it by belonging to this body and by going out from this body and living out what we've learned together. By God's grace, we can continue to be that into a new year.
into a new generation as a congregation. So that's our first heading this morning. That's what it looks like positively. That's what it means for the church to stand in the world as a pillar in support of the truth. Now we, we can pivot and, and do a little bit of clarifying work here and just clear away some possible mistakes that we might lapse into when it comes to thinking about the pillar and support of the truth. And this is the point I want to make especially. And, and I, I make this point because of the way Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy 3.15. When Paul says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, he is not saying that the truth of the gospel ultimately depends upon the church. And we can say gently but firmly, this is where traditional Roman Catholicism has gone wrong. Historically, Rome claims that it is thanks to the church's testimony and interpretation that people can and ought to receive the word of God as authoritative over their lives. Historically, Rome claims, in effect, that it is the church that makes the word. Now, they would never put it that way, to be fair. But that's clearly the implication of their claim about the church. It amounts to this. The word depends upon the church. If the word is to have authority, if it's to be rightly understood. And it's worth clarifying here, especially as we think about this imagery of the the pillar and support and signpost. It is not the church that makes the word. It is the word that makes the church. That's the very pattern of faith. First, God speaks. That comes first. And then faith responds by embracing what God has spoken. The word comes first. As Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God speaks first, then faith embraces and responds. And then what does the faithful one do next? Well, naturally, he bears witness. He holds forth the truth that he's come to believe because that's what God has called him to do and be in the world. He holds forth to the world something, a truth, that came before him. Something that doesn't really depend upon him. He testifies to the truth that made him faithful in the first place. Well, if that's true of the individual believer, it's the same pattern when it comes to the church as a whole. First, God spoke the truth of his gospel. The church embraced that gospel by faith. And then what did the church do next? Well, naturally, the church took the gospel that it had come to believe and held it up and held it forth as a people for the world to see. And the church has been standing strong like a pillar ever since, proclaiming and defending the gospel in word and life, a pillar and support that in God's providence will never, ever be torn down. So you see how this works. Here's the the Bible's perfect middle way when it comes to the importance of the church. On the one hand, the gospel doesn't need us. 
The gospel doesn't need the church, ultimately speaking. Before we were born, we can put it this way, before we were born, the word is. The word made us and not the other way around. So, so that, that humbles us, puts us in our place. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that the church does not matter. The fact is the church matters a great deal. Because in God's design, there's got to be a pillar. There's got to be some abiding witness in the world if the word of God is to be known in and by the world. And God has designed it in such a way that the church is that pillar. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. The church didn't create the gospel, but it certainly bears witness to it now. In God's purposes, the church has got to be there, bearing witness, holding fast, standing strong, not because we're so important of ourselves, but because our God is so gracious that he should be willing to give us this part to play. And it is a great part indeed, ruled by God's word, and at the very same time, holding that word forth so that others might be saved and brought in as we have been. Now, brothers and sisters, how can we take what we've seen here today and bring it to bear upon our lives? Well, a first word of application, a first word of encouragement to you is to take that point I was just making and to kind of drive it home that we want to to think carefully about the church in the world. And we want to do so as those who belong to it. This is a a way for us to understand, to think clearly and carefully about this body that we belong to now. Wander neither to the right nor to the left. Don't think too highly about the church and don't think too lowly about it either. On the one hand, don't do as the Romans do. The church is not the infallible interpreter of God's word. On the other hand, don't do as the world does. The church is not to be laughed off. The church is not to be torn down as if it could be. The church isn't even to be simply regrettably tolerated. As if your participation in the life of this body were some kind of bitter pill that you've got to swallow on occasion for your own spiritual good. Christian, the church ought to be important to you. It is the household of God, as Paul says. It is the church of the living God, as Paul says. It is the pillar upon which God displays his truth. Truth that you, as a believer, still need to hear and embrace again and again. In preaching and in the sacraments and in our songs and in our prayers and in our life of fellowship and accountability together, even, when our, even in our lives when we're apart. So think clearly and carefully about the church. Nothing less than the pillar of the truth. And it is that because our God has so kindly condescended to make it that. To make us that here in Fairfax. And then here's a second word of encouragement. And it's related to that first one. Don't let the reality of the church's troubles in this age trump Scripture's teaching in your own mind. Don't get so caught up in the church's sin and division and confusion that you get to the point that you cannot see the glory that's here. Because, brothers and sisters, there is glory here in the church. 
Right now, we are the pillar of the truth of the gospel in the world. And we are that in fellowship with every other true church all over the world. And yes, we are that, warts and all, tarnished in some ways, beaten and battered in some ways, but we are that pillar yet. And it's good for us to be reminded of it in case we lose sight of the glory. And then a a third word about this pillar that we are. Brothers and sisters, take heart. We are a pillar that will stand forever. And that's saying a lot. When you imagine the church like this, when you make use of Paul's image, pillar and support, don't imagine a pillar always standing strong on a nice, sunny, quiet day, sun shining, birds singing, flowers blooming, gentle breeze blowing. You can bring along another image of a pillar, maybe a lighthouse on the shore at night during the perfect storm. Gale force winds, blinding rain, crashing waves, Trees nearby uprooted and blown against it. Boats picked up and dashed against it. And the bricks of the pillar are worn and scarred because there have been a lot of storms before this one. And there will be lots more so long as it's still standing there. And yet all the while, in the midst of it all, the light is still up there shining. And it never goes out. The pillar itself, beaten and battered and scarred, but never torn down, never knocked down. Friends, that's the pillar that is the church. Battered, worn, scarred thanks to the persecution of the world. Thanks also to the sin and heresy of her own sons and daughters, but it is still standing and it always will be standing there holding aloft the light of the gospel. The pillar will never come down. The God who built it guards it still, and he is strong and wise and faithful. And that brings me to my last word this morning, which is happy birthday. Happy birthday to us, the Presbyterian Church in America, 50 years as a denomination. Imagine that. Fifty years ago, Richard Nixon was president and everybody was driving Model Ts. Well, maybe not Model Ts, but it was a long time ago. How grateful we can be for those 50 years and how hopeful we can be for the years to come. You may know this, that the PCA has a three-part slogan. It's meant to capture the things that we've always been Committed to as a denomination for these 50 years and for as many more years as the Lord is pleased to give us. And here it is. Faithful to the scriptures. True to the reformed faith. Obedient to the Great Commission. Those three. Faithful to the scriptures. True to the reformed faith. And obedient to the Great Commission. And come to think of it, that little three-part slogan wouldn't be a bad way for us to spend the next three Sunday sermons. Hint, hint. Faithful to the Scriptures, 
true to the Reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission. Happy birthday to us. Much to be thankful for here on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful and we give you thanks now for what you have made us to be as a congregation here in Fairfax for over 30 years, the pillar and support of the truth in this community and for the denomination to which we belong for these 50 years. We give you thanks and we pray that you would bless us, that you would instruct us these days, these weeks, as we reflect upon this great milestone, as we reflect again upon what you have made us to be and what you have called us to be about in the world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.